0: Welcome to First Up, it's Vatu Tuesday, the 8th of November. Cornethan Radade Aho coming up. We're gonna be in Egypt as the UN COP27 conference gets underway. But will we see any real action on climate emergency stuff? There's also a rare opportunity to see a blood moon tonight. Stardome astronomer Rob Davison explains the best ways that you can look up and catch it. And Nationals Deputy Leader Nicola Willis calls for an independent inquiry into whether the Reserve Bank contributed to financial institutions reporting massive profits, long sentence.
1: The first question we need to answer is what is driving those profits and how much bigger are they than they should be? To get an answer to that question, we need an independent inquiry.
0: maria, welcome to First Up, I'm Nathan Rarere and it's Tuesday so time to cross to the UK to say kia ora to Henry Riley. Hey man, how are you? Hello Nathan, very well. So tell me about this, the nurses are set to strike, it's a first ever national action, what's going to happen there and tell us about possible
2: disruptions? That's right. We've seen strikes across the country in various sectors. We've seen post office workers who obviously deliver mail and various uh, things. They've gone on strike. We've seen heavy strikes uh, regarding transport workers, in particular people who work on the trains at the underground and also the drivers themselves going on strike. And now the sort of summer of strikes is branching out. We had talk around a month or so ago around about teachers Potentially going on strike, and now we see that nurses have had have been balloted and look set to go on strike. It would be the biggest nursing strike in NHS history. The strike itself, we imagine, uh, this week the uh, members who've been voting on it. The actual result is due to be confirmed or at least revealed, and we imagine that the strike will then happen before Christmas. Now, you know, waiting lists in the UK are, are extremely high as it is, so there's a worry from the government and indeed a worry from various members of the British public that this strike is going to make things more difficult. What does the dispute come down to? Well, it's mainly about pay. So currently the average uh, salary of a nurse is £35,600. Now that's going to rise by 4%. Um, uh you know, later on this year. Now, the problem is the nursing union wants a increase of 15 percent because they want an inflation pay rise, which is 10 percent plus an additional five percent. And the government are saying that they think nurses deserve a pay rise, but the 15% just isn't sustainable when you move across various sectors as well. So it looks like nurses set to go on strike. This is the Royal College of Nursing. And we saw more than 300,000 members balloted and it'll be the biggest strike, as I say, in the history of the union. Yeah, I forgot when
0: you said summer of strikes. I thought thought of that the railway bloke again. He was brilliant, that guy. Hey, um tell Nick us about Lynch, yeah. yeah, now these um the, the blocking of motorways. We saw people on the airport in um in Holland riding round around in circles being chased by police. Eco Warriors, where are they blocking motorways this time?
2: You're quite right. And we've seen people, you know, throwing paint on and soup, indeed, on various paintings uh, Mm. across Europe as well. Uh, This is part of this continued disruption by a group called Just Stop Oil. Now, they're a sort of off-breed of a different group called Extinction Rebellion, and they are far more extreme. And they have taken to motorways as being their main source of protest. Now, this morning we had uh, the rush hour in the morning, which meant that the M25 is a sort of ring road that surrounds London. is extremely busy. And climate change protesters actually climbed up to various gantries, you know, which are the sort of bits which overhang the motorway with various signs saying how far away you are to London, et cetera, et cetera, you know, speed limits and whatnot. And they were climbing on top, which meant that the actual road had to be closed in various parts of this busy road the m25 um it's an absolute pain for motorists but the group themselves say that any pain that motorists may encounter and people you know on their commute to work is nothing compared to their general aims of preventing climate change they're of course doing this to tie in with the start of the cop 27 summit which is taking a Place you know far far afield from here in uh, in Egypt, but the Met were acting pretty quickly. We've seen some of these protests go on for for hours. Indeed, there was a a lady in Kent in the UK who actually tied herself up to one of the bridge and she was on there for something like thirty hours. The Met closes down after a number of hours, hmm. and twenty three people have now been arrested.
0: Oh my, oh my goodness me! Finally, a shock poll shows Winston Churchill unpopular with the majority of younger generation.
2: What's this? I know, really surprising poll. Actually, I think you could say this is done by a group called Policy Exchange. Who, just to give you some sort of uh, context, are a pretty right-leaning think tank in the UK. So they are very pro, you know, Winston Churchill. Yes, for all I intents think and purposes.
0: our opposition leader went up and spent some time with them. Yes.
2: Yes. Yeah, I think so. So, they, you know, they are they are not a sceptical group, it's fair to say. It's not being carried out by a sort of left-wing organisation that you could say, oh, you know, they've always disliked Churchill. So they've done this poll, and it's quite wide-ranging. It breaks it down by various um, sort of subtext. I think one of the most interesting things is, compare it to 2018. The British public, 47% of people said they admired Winston Churchill. Rewind, well, fast forward that, we'll say four years on from now. um, It's now 36% of the public saying they think of him positively. But the biggest decline, and perhaps unsurprisingly, is among 18 to 24-year-olds. They are now a third less likely than the over 65s to say they admired Winston Churchill. Now, the the subject of Winston Churchill has been honestly a debate that rears its head every year in the UK. We had the, the statue of sir winston churchill being defaced back in 2020 during black lives matter protest and that sort of kicked off a debate and there's been various incarnations of that debate since then but this poll by policy exchange showing that perhaps the legacy of winston churchill is one that's going to slightly diminish in the years to come certainly if the younger generations are far less pro him than uh, than the elderly generations in the uk it's very interesting
0: well, I went to Sir Winston Churchill Senior High School and we had a really good jacket, had a bulldog on it. So there you are. That's a lovely oh. thing. <laughs> there we are, Henry Henry Riley out of the UK. Yeah, did bring it home with me. Giant bulldog on the back in a circle. Uh, first up at RNZ National is what you're listening to with me, Nathan Rader. A couple of food fights happening in the office. Number one, um, this one happened because there's many serious things. Of course, you can get to us with two one zero oh, one. But just for a bit today, big argument broke out on the work WhatsApp group about if red onion belongs in guacamole. Um, and Katrina, you're you're railing against tomato in it. Okay. Uh guacamole recipes. Two two and I was no, not garlic, my bash. come on. Come on, uh, and <laughs> and uh, also as well I saw $10.50 uh, raspberries yesterday for a punnet and I thought to myself you're just putting these out at $10.50 so you can throw them away in two days because ain't no one buying one of those anyway um, yes thoughts on the world 2101 let us know let's go to Japan now where the government is looking to take control of people's air conditioning inside their apartments our correspondent in Tokyo Chris Gilbert explained
3: Japan has four seasons, but it has four very strong seasons, and the summers are very hot, and the winters are very cold, and in these times, people like to use their air conditioning systems, or as we say in Japan, aircon, yeah. and uh, they use them a lot. And every year the government says, hey, guys, like this year, just tone it down a little bit, please. Maybe like make the room not so hot or maybe not so cold because energy and people probably don't listen. And so this year the government is saying, all right, bugger you a lot. We'll do it ourselves. We're taking over. And so they're looking at this task force or an investigation or something to control People's air cons remotely big brother is here and he's not watching but he is Adjusting the humidity in your lounge. Of course, Japan has an energy crisis at the moment It imports a lot of its energy. The yen is very weak which means, you know, obviously the cost of imports go up. But not only that, but it imports energy from Russia. Oh. The country is currently heavily sanctioning at the moment. Yeah, so things are, are quite expensive uh, for the consumer. And, you know, and also energy is in short supply. So at times of energy shortages because, you know, they monitor, you know, how busy the grid is and, you know, where the pressure point, I, I, you know, I don't know how it works, but they know when the energy is in short supply and at these times they're looking at taking over remote control of your, well, you know, like remotely controlling uh, your air conditioning system, which well, shouldn't be too hard because apparently, uh, you know, like it's controlled remotely already, right, you know, with the little device in your hand <laughs> and all it has to do is connect it to the internet somehow. I have a, actually have an air purifier or air detoxifier, one of those big machines in my living room. Yeah. I call it Big Boy. That is re- controlled remotely, so I get these little notifications on my phone. I was like, "Oh, Big Boy is says that the air purity in your kitchen is 70 percent," and I'm like, "Oh, thanks, Big Boy." And so I think the government now wants to do effectively the same thing, but uh, with your air conditioning. So, um. Hopefully they do a good job of it if it happens and, and Grandma doesn't get a chill.
0: Yeah, the big boy. I love it. We've met big boys today. See, the Internet of Things. Here it comes, everybody. It's what they call it, the Internet of Things. Now tell me about uh, something different here. Self-Defense Forces, turn 70. What's the celebration? That's right.
3: Yeah, well, what's the celebration indeed, Nate? Nate? Well, well, yeah, I mean, well, not big cakes, more big boys, big ships. A whole lot of big ships. So Japan doesn't have an army. It has a self defense force. Constitutionally, it's not allowed an army, but it is allowed a lot of boats. And so it got a whole bunch of its boats together for the first time in 20 years and called it a naval fleet review and invived, uh, invited um, a whole bunch of ships from other countries, 11 other countries, to attend and join their boats together, not literally, but just you know, figuratively in this this naval review. Korea came for the first time uh, to this party in a long, long time, showing that really under Yunso Kyo, the new president, South Korea really is getting quite close to Japan now, you know, with the... The barbed tensions in their history China was invited but did not Come to the party. Russia just Wasn't invited. You can't come to the Big ship party, Russia um, (laughs) They're probably still having their their boats Floating around by themselves up in the the North Sea there above Hokkaido. But it does come as the Prime Minister of Japan, Kishida, is going around the Asia-Pacific region, shoring up defence packs with pretty much everybody. You know, it should make a collectible tour t-shirt. He's doing so many countries, so many events to um, make so many defence agreements. There was the Canadian Defence Minister, oh, sorry, Foreign Minister was in Japan a couple of months ago. And then Kishida went down to Australia to meet Albanese and make a defence agreement. Wendy Sherman from the US was here. Defense agreement, South Korea defense agreement, and now next month it looks like the UK and Japan is going to make another defense agreement. And this, of course, as all as Japan looks to remilitarize itself a little, as uh, Pyongyang fires missiles into the sea of Japan, and China makes aggressive assertive moves in the region as well. Um, it looks like uh, step by step, Kishida and Japan is looking down the path of of remilitarizing itself and. The 70th birthday party of the self-defence forces and this big naval parade is just one step along that road.
0: That's Chris Gilbert and Big Boy there in Tokyo. It is 17 past five. You're listening to First Stop on RNZ National. We appreciate uh, you being here. Now, for the first time since the pandemic hit, Cirque du Soleil is coming back to New Zealand with a new show next year. Crystal is the Canadian Circus Company's 42nd creation, and it's the first one set on ice. I asked the show's uh, artistic director, Rob Tanyan, what audiences have in store.
4: It is exciting. It's really great that we're going to be going down under to uh, New Zealand and Australia. Uh, Crystal is Cirque du Soleil's show number 42, but the very first show or acrobatic show that the company has done on ice
0: which is amazing here because I've been to your shows and I have been wowed by people just appearing out of the stage and falling into holes and doing all that. I imagine this is much harder on ice, Rob.
4: Yeah, well, yeah. uh, The great thing is we've got 43 artists on stage, a mixture of acrobats and skaters, and within that skating realm we've got figure skaters, pair skaters, freestyle skaters and extreme skaters so for the extreme sports people there they'll uh, they'll get into that and what's beautiful is we've got this 25 meter by 15 meter ice skating rink which becomes our playground really to mix our two genres of circus and, and skating together told through the vehicle of the story of crystal our heroine
0: so rob i imagine that a, a big sheet of ice is that quite is that, is that quite good as as a projector as a projector screen to to put things on?
4: Yeah, have absolutely nailed it. So yeah, it is. One of the things I truly love about crystal is the ability to transform that giant sheet of uh, white or that white yeah. paper, that slice of ice, into you know multiple locations into places that that crystal can journey through and and to over the two hours of the show. So yes, yeah, truly beautiful.
0: So, Rob, tell me about, I mean, as an artistic director here, what is your involvement on this? And and tell me about the parts where you're just allowed to let your imagination run wild and go, what about if we did this?
4: (laughs) So the role of the artistic director, really, if I have one mandate, is to, to absolutely make sure that we produce or present the absolute best show for our audiences, given the conditions of the day. Post-COVID, I think we understand what, given the conditions of the day, means, but it could be, you know, if we have a a technical problem, if we've had a a lighting issue, you know, sometimes the running around backstage to make sure that the show is seamless, I'd say, is where I earn my dollars, Um, and really, it's just ensuring that the show really is presented as best as it can be. I look after, I collaborate with 43 artists, 10 artistic team, which include stage managers, doctors, and sports people, and then... um, all the other 50 technicians so it's a lot to juggle but it's a it's a great to be part of that team
0: that's way too many plates to be spinning for one person to say tell you that rob <laughs> hey rob so we were just i was just thinking there in my head i thought so if you want to be doing a show based with people running around wearing jandals new zealand's your place you come to find that where do you find where do you find so many skating performers
4: We've got people from all over the world, so within Crystal, we have 93 people in total of those 25 different countries, and there's 18 languages spoken. So we always look for who is the absolute best person to do this, and we go everywhere to find them. And sometimes we do find that thing, you know, it's it's not as easy to go... Great! I need a world-class acrobat who can also ice skate. <laughs> Sometimes we have to up, so we do have to upskill people, and that goes both directions. You no know? uh, skaters also willing to be what we call pendulum pole pushers, and they're pushing a five-meter pole across the ice, so doing something aerial that they're not used to doing. I'd say the the search is always on for the very best people, and those people have got openness to to cross train and learn how to skate and etc. So yeah.
0: How big is, is your
4: ship of stuff that you bring? There's got to be how many containers do you travel with? <laughs> okay, so on tour at the moment, we've got 21 48-foot semi-trailers. And we normally take about 15 hours to set up and between four and five hours to tear the whole show down. As we're talking right now, I'm in, let's call, uh, the second show of the day and we're about to do a loadout. So the moment, and I kid you not, the moment that set of jandals, as you said, (laughs) is finished being used, it's on the back of a truck. So we're cross-loading and getting everything out. This, The thing I really love about... Crystal and Cirque du Soleil is the logistic ballet that happens on behind the scenes. It's um it's truly impressive.
0: That is Rob Tanyon, who is the artistic director of Cirque du Soleil's new show Crystal. So you have time to save for this. Uh, the show will be in Christchurch at the Christchurch Arena next year between the 16th and the 25th of June, and then at Auckland's Spark Arena between the 4th and 9th of July. <music> Chives. Okay, uh, it's twenty-two past five. I'm Nathan Aradier with First Up here on RNZ National. One of our audience members suggesting chives uh, in guacamole too. Two one zero one. There you go. Two-01, Let us know. Yeah. I haven't heard that one, I'll I'll write it down. I'll give it a go. Uh, Look, coming up on the show very soon, we're going to get the news out of Bay of Plenty with LDR's Alicia Evans. And also we're going to go to Egypt where COP27 conference is underway. Let's go to the beautiful Bay of Plenty right now. And we're joined by Local Democracy Reporting Program journalist Alicia Evans. Morena Alicia, what's going on there with the, the future of the race course there in Tauranga?
5: Morena, so um, the race course, they're trying to decide its future. It's got a lease until 2029, but they're talking about using the land for a few different things. Um, A couple of those do not include the race course. There's the option of a health precinct and a park, or just a park, or leaving the race course where it is. And um, the hearings that were meant to happen, they've delayed them because there's some extra work they need to do. Now, the race course is actually a little bit happy about that. That means they can focus on having races this summer without having to worry too much about whether they're not going to be there in the future. So,
0: Yeah, it's uh, an interesting choice of what to do with those around the country, isn't it? And I also see, speaking of land, the Prime Minister was in town to witness some land being returned to Mana Whenua.
5: Yes, so she um, came along, she said it was a rare occasion where the Crown hadn't actually done anything, but it was a joint venture by, obviously, Mana Whenua and the Tauranga City Council. They've gifted some land, well, not gifted, but the land has gone back to Manawhenua, it's rightful owners, and it will now be used to make a civic precinct to Manawatake or to Papa. So the Manawhenua have quite kindly gifted the land back to the city for the benefit of everyone and it'll become a $304 million civic precinct over the years to come. Ah,
0: wonderful. Thank you uh, very much. This is uh, from Tauranga. That is Alicia Evans with all the news of the Bay of Plenty. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. The day of our life we call the 8th of November. Yesterday, whilst studying for this piece, I discovered that the name Bram is short for Abraham. I didn't know that one. Didn't know that one at all. Bram Stoker, born in Dublin on this day in 1847. Went on to scare everybody with... Story about Dracula. <laughs> also born on this day, Margaret Mitchell, author of Gone with the Wind. She was born in Atlanta in Georgia. So uh, who's alive celebrating birthdays today? Happy birthday to you, Parker Posey, brilliant comedic actress. Also Gordon Beep Ramsey, born in Scotland this day, 58 years ago. And Richard Curtis, screenwriter, producer, pretty much incredible film person, uh, involved in Four Weddings and a Funeral, Bridget Jones Diary, love actually, born in Wellington on this day in 1956. Um, still lovely. It's given something to talk about by Bonnie Raitt. What a tune. Um, she's 73 years old today. And on this day in 1519, it was the first meeting of the Aztec Emperor Moctezuma II and the Spanish conquistador Hernan Cortes. Uh, so they met there in Tenochtitlan. And it's an interesting thing there. And I, I listened to a great uh, history of Mexico. And the person reading it says, you know, normally there's a bad guy and a good guy. Yeah, it's just two bad guys meeting each other. But... This was an interesting thing I learned in it too. The first tomato sauces that we know about all through European cooking, Spanish and Italian, yep, look, nope, came from Tenochtitlan. That's where they were first being sold in the markets there when the Spaniards arrived. Many of the same ingredients, tomatoes, bell peppers and chilies that would later define Italian tomato pasta sauces 200 years later. And that is what happened on this day that we like to call the 8th of November. You're trying to say, you're trying to say, let's get down to business, it's business time. It's business, it's business time. Joining us from the business team, that is Mr. Giles Begford. Kia ora, Giles. Kia ora to you, Nathan. I didn't know that, that uh, really it's a Mexican origin for a lasagna. How about a lot that? of
6: stuff comes from that part of the world, potatoes was- and stuff. I mean, you know, Europeans were pretty slow to catch up. You're getting that. There we go, and we'll get into guacamole as well. Gosh, don't
0: we open a ton of worms with that one? Tell us about this. What's this interesting piece here? The generation
6: game of the workplace. Well, somebody's done a survey. Of course, they've done a survey, <laughs> and it shows that it's been done by a recruitment firm, by the way. It shows that workers over fifty are more likely to go above and beyond uh, in their job than those who are under twenty-five. Now, it's not necessarily reflective of the work ethic per se, uh, but the survey suggested that about 54% of those over 50 uh, believe that they go above and beyond what's needed for them, that uh, compares with about 17% of those who were under 25. Now, in the middle group, the 25 to 50 year group, 43% of them uh, say they do more than they necessarily uh, would have to do. Uh, And the uh, survey uh, authors have taken the view that uh, really what it comes down to is that those under 25 have got a more refined sense of the work-life balance. And so they're doing enough to get the job done. But they're not going overboard about it, so there's none of that Japanese mentality that we often heard of uh, years ago, where people would stay hours and hours later than they needed to, well, it was, just, just to improve the boss. Uh, it was really, it was a real culture thing that was smashed into us in the
0: 90s, wasn't it? I remember it was almost like those Nike ads. Remember that better never sleeps. You got to get up early. That's if right. You're a, if you're in the office at 3 a.m., your opponent's in there at 2 a.m. <laughs>
6: <laughs> Greed never sleeps. Ah. Oh, w- wolves of, of uh, Wall Street, w- yeah. Wolves of Wellington. Perhaps. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> The wolves of Willow Street. They've yeah, not done it. <laughs> um, so you know it's just differing attitudes, um, and it might be that the comment is really not on the. Uh, the lack of oomph from those under 25, but the stupidity of those of us over 50 who's still <laughs> battling on past the eight hours. You I was going to say that. The under 25s would look
0: and go, really, you give them that much free work? Precisely. That's probably the way they,
6: they look at it. Yeah, That's interesting. right. I mean, I've, I've noticed it in, in workplaces where I've been where essentially they're going, we're off to the pub. Do you want to come? And I go, no, I've just got to do a little bit more work here. I've just got to fill this report and you know write this story. And Such go... a good excuse when you hate your work, mate. And, they, and so they're good. saying, yeah, OK, all right, we'll catch you tomorrow. Yeah, <laughs> we will. Uh, Giles, thank you very much for your time, sir. So
0: you can hear more from the business team on Morning Report this morning at 1027. Now turning to how the New Zealand dollar is being traded around the world. It is currently at 59.26 US cents, 91.54 Australian cents. Nine, oh, 59, Oh, actually, neck and neck. How about that? US cents and euro cents are both fifty-nine point two six this morning. Uh, it is fifty-one point seven zero British pence, four point two seven yuan, and eighty-six point eight Japanese yen. Okay. Uh, the United Nations two-week COP27 climate conference is underway in Egypt. It's the first time financing for damage from climate change is on the agenda. Joining me now is the BBC's Matt McGrath, who is in Sharm el-Sheikh for the conference. Matt, thank you very much uh, for being here with us. You know, there's lots going on in the world, uh, lots of crisis going around, devastations from floods in Pakistan, there's war in Ukraine, you know, cost of food and energy. How are those going to be discussed in this conference, if at all?
7: I think, Nathan, they're making themselves uh, very much felt here because I think you can see from the cast list of leaders that have turned up today, while there are 120 of them, they're missing some big hitters, if you like. The, uh, uh, the leader of China isn't here. The Prime Minister Modi from India isn't here. Neither are the leaders of Australia, Canada or Japan. Now, they Obviously, you know, there are distractions for all the countries that are here as well. And I guess the the feeling and the expectation here is that perhaps because of that, it won't be able to to scale the heights of Glasgow last year and achieve as much as perhaps was achieved there.
0: I suppose, too, you know, we saw early on leaders of nations like Tuvalu and other Pacific nations, which are really, really under threat of being submerged if nothing changes. Do, Do they get a decent chance to be heard and actually noticed?
7: Yeah, they do. I mean, countries like Tuvalu, uh, Vanuatu, the Seychelles, the Marshall Islands are often referred to as the conscience of the COP, as small island states or developing countries that really are impacted more by climate change than they've ever or ever will have an impact on causing it. So, very much so that these countries are very much listened to. This is a forum of consensus. So, everybody's vote in theory is the same as everybody else's. So, the bigger countries have only the same voice as the smaller ones. That has led to 30 years of very slow progress, but it's also led to decisions that ultimately every country can support and every country can buy into, which has led to the Paris Agreement. And a global idea that perhaps we should try and keep temperatures under 1.5 degrees Celsius this century the way of staving off the worst impacts of climate change and perhaps all countries making efforts to get to net zero emissions by the middle of the century or thereabouts. So it's a slow Process is difficult. The smaller countries do have a say in it; they are heard here, um, and they actually possibly punch above their weight here.
0: Global financing is something that I've read about here. This this time, we can expect global financing. First off, just explain to us what that is, and then how does it work?
7: yeah it 's a how long have you got to be honest it 's a, a complex it 's a complex business but to to put it bluntly, for the last twenty or thirty years or so, the focus on global climate finance has been on two things it 's been on the rich countries helping the poorer countries to cut their emissions, so helping them build new power stations or solar plants rather than coal and it 's also been helping them to adapt to the worst impacts of climate change, which people expected to be happening in the future. Well guess what as many people realize those impacts are happening a lot more quickly. And countries, poorer countries, have said, look, we're experiencing losses and damages caused by those climate impacts. And we need money for those things as well. Richer countries have said, well, hang on a second. You might have, have us on the on the hook here for hundreds of years to come if we have to pay for every storm or every flood that happens. So this has been a big standoff. There's been some progress on that here. They've allowed a discussion to happen. So after 30 years of not allowing a discussion, there's going to be a formal negotiating item on the agenda on loss and damage developing countries are very pleased about that richer countries are kind of saying it doesn't mean compensation it doesn't mean reparations and it'll take two years to work out the details but I think it is a significant if small step so so that
0: is that helps those vulnerable countries that aren't so for to to aff, uh, sorry that aren't so wealthy to afford the infrastructure needed that's that's kind of the general idea behind that
7: Yeah, I think it helps them more also to deal if there's a sudden storm, uh, there isn't any aid or insurance that covers it, it helps them to deal with that. It also pushes questions of uh, cultural loss. So what about the loss of Arctic ice? I mean, who pays for that? What about the loss of beaches in countries that depend on tourism? Who pays for that? So there are a lot of questions about this that are not yet ironed out. And I think it encompasses more than just helping countries to prepare. It's also about how do they cover, how do they cope with the losses they're having now?
0: Yeah, uh, Matt, thank you very much for your time, sir, from the BBC. That is Matt McGrath. It's 20 to 6. I'm Nathan Rarere. You're listening to First Up here at RNZ National. So, between now and the end of the program, you're going to hear from the National Party's deputy deputy leader, Nicola Willis, and also Stardome astronomer Rob Davison because there's something interesting in the sky tonight. On the morning of the blood moon, we uh, seek the guidance of Morning Report, the professionals of the RNZ ship, and they are here. It's Marnie Dunlop, who's with us. Kia ora, how are you?
8: Morina, I'm good. Nathan,
0: how are you? I'm not bad. I'm looking forward to my blood moon tonight. I'm going to look up. Some of your red.
8: Yeah, <laughs> so am I, actually. <laughs> I'll be like, oh, yeah, good. <laughs> yeah, nice. Cool. Great. Everyone see that? Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, all right. Back to bed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. yeah yeah <laughs> what's happening today? uh look, as you would have heard in the news there we dive in to uh the census and you know ministers briefings um Around you know these fake websites, which were among the key risks, and ShowStatsNZ is engaged in attempts at myth busting and, and managing disinformation. Obviously, our last census didn't go too well, and there were a myriad of challenges there. Uh, especially the outcome, the numbers for for Maori and Pacifica were abysmal, and so uh, there needs to be a lot of work. and We'll be asking a lot of questions around how they will be improving the next census. We also uh, go back to the North Shore. Our health correspondent Rowan Quinn who's been doing a lot of stories around uh, you know the, the the complaint that was made by staff because people were waiting days for an inpatient bed for the mental health unit and the risks that are involved there so we speak to Andrew Little uh, we also speak to Erica Stanford the National Party immigration spokesperson and uh, yeah and we also we're also talking banks we're going to talk, talking about those banks um, making, making some pretty healthy profits. Uh, what does that look like? We speak to the Green Party finance spokesperson uh, as well as other representatives to talk about what that means and obviously the prime minister was very scathing yesterday mm. so that um that obviously has weight to it so we'll see we'll see what they have to say for themselves right. nathan
0: thank you very much Cheers. now Amani, of course with you up after six now if you're looking for some entertainment this evening um i've just got the the ticket and it's free for everyone as well so that's pretty good uh, yeah putting it up first up putting this on for everybody um we don't like to talk about our charities, but we do. Uh, around midnight tonight, a total lunar eclipse blood moon is going to be visible in New Zealand. I asked Auckland Stardome astronomer Rob Davison how often blood moons occur.
9: The next one will be in March 2025. You tend to find that you get a set of two or three over the course of a year or 18 months. Eclipses actually happen Very regularly, every six months or so, but they might be partial eclipses, they might not be visible from where you are. So you do tend to get these sets every few years.
0: Each one I've noticed over the last few years, it's always interesting to find something unique about them. This one happens bang on midnight.
9: Yeah, well, pretty much. It actually starts, what we would call the partial phase starts just after 10. So that's where you see the shadow moving across the moon's surface gradually. And then before midnight, it will be that, that red colour that we're all looking for. But the peak of it, where it's as far into the Earth's shadow as possible, will be just before midnight. And is that
0: when the werewolves happen? Like, when does that uh, happen?
9: Yeah, yeah, that's when all the strange things occur. So, you know, <laughs> you want to be... No,
0: <laughs> so where, where, would the be, uh, where would like the best place be in New Zealand, I guess, to see the Blood Moon?
9: Anywhere. Basically. Great. It's... Yeah, it's not like a solar eclipse where you have to be bang on the line of totality to get the best view. People will be able to see it anywhere, and you don't need any special equipment. All you need is to get outside and have a look up. If you're lucky enough to be able to get away from any light pollution, even better, but... Yeah, everybody should be able to see it.
0: Yeah, cuz I guess it, you know like as you mentioned uh, prior cloudy nights can can get in the way, can't they? So I guess the idea have a look early if you really want it, you're really keen on this and try and get get somewhere clear, right? To to have a look. I'm ju- I'm just wondering is this something that with the way that things line up, is this something that the whole planet can see or are we in the absolute prime position here in New Zealand?
9: Well, well, we're time, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we're, exactly. We're in a very good position. The fact it's that totality is at midnight means it's pretty much in the middle of the night for us. Other places in the world won't be so lucky. They'll get it in the daytime or at the end or the beginning of the day. And I've had ones in the past where I've really wanted to see it and the weather just hasn't been on my side. So I would recommend if you want to see a a lunar eclipse this could be a really really good one you don't want to wait too many more years if the weather is not so great where you are.
0: Yeah it's a good point yeah if it's going to be good say it for that one. Does it when this happens I'm just wondering you're probably getting less light bounce back off the moon so do you as an astronomer are there stars that you can see better now because of I guess this less bounce back?
9: That's a good question. In short yes you can see a few more stars but it will be more similar to when you have a new moon have no moon there at all. So the moon is dimmer, but, yeah, hopefully uh, people are mostly looking at the moon, not worrying too much about
4: everything
0: else. Now, I I joked before about about werewolves, but I'm wondering if, if, for example, you get into an Uber or you're meeting people at a party or something like that and you say you're an astronomer, how often do people look at you and go, ooh, I'm Sagittarius, and then want to know things from you?
9: (laughs) We kindly and gently uh, push them in the direction of somebody who might know uh, those those things, but they are <laughs> at least real constellations.
0: Yes, yes, they are. They yeah. Are. With this at the moment, what do you? I'm just wondering too. What do you make as an astronomer now? of Things that you've been able to see, and this has been something that you know you've you've poured a lot of your love and your adult life into. This James Webb Telescope and these types of images that are coming back now. How much of a marvel is this for you?
9: Oh, it's incredible, and it's something that astronomers have been waiting for so long, as well. It's a, you know, it's a project that they first put together in the 90s and then the 2000s and 2010s and so many times when it looked like it wasn't going to come through. And then when those first pictures came out in July and just blew people away, and that was the very first stuff. So, yeah, we're really looking forward to seeing what, what comes out of it in the years to come.
0: That was Stardome astronomer Rob Davison. Time now to hear from the deputy leader of the sorry deputy leader of the National Party, Nicola Willis. I began this week's talk by asking her about Christopher Luxon's meeting with Auckland Mayor Wayne Brown on Monday, just as council reported a two hundred and seventy million dollar fiscal hole.
1: Well, look, I think it shows you that councils like New Zealand families, businesses, they're all feeling the pain due to rising costs and councils are no different. Uh, I think what's interesting from Wayne Brown is he's looking at head office savings, operational efficiencies, scrutiny of the spending that's going on. I think that's the right thing to do. My question is, why isn't the government doing the same thing? $270
0: million of it, though, that's going to be a lot of operational streamlining. It makes you wonder how big the operation's going to be by the end of it.
1: I think that it means that they're going to have to be very careful to be ensuring that they're investing in the things that matter to Aucklanders, that they're getting that money to the front line, that they're delivering the services that ratepayers want, because many Auckland families are not well placed to pay for a big hike in rates right now.
0: So do you think that was a sign of poor financial management by the council over the years?
1: Look, I haven't looked over their accounts to understand in detail what's meant they've got into this position. What I do know is that costs across the board have gone up with inflation, whether it's construction costs, whether it's wage costs, whether it's electricity costs, it's all going up across the board. That's hitting the bottom line of businesses, of families and of councils too.
0: Now, it's, it's something else that's gone up, uh, good news for you, News Hub Read Research poll, very positive for National and Act there. So you guys are both up. Given Act is now comfortably above the threshold to enter Parliament, is National still going to gift them the Epsom seat again or is it, are you going to stand a credible candidate? There.
1: We have selected a very credible candidate for the Epsom seat and that's the Honourable Paul Goldsmith mm-hmm. and I know that he will do a great job running in that electorate, and I'm sure that many people in Epsom will give both their party vote to National and offer their support to Paul too.
0: David Seymour said he wants to be the Minister of Finance, and that's a position that you no doubt would like for yourself, should National win the next election, and you're in a good, you're in a pretty good place too. So I guess this comes into a bit of philosophy. If it came down to it and they said, we would like you to step aside here to enable National to form a government with ACT, How does that sit with you? Because, I mean, this is when when we speak, we speak lots of finance together.
1: Well, look, to be honest, I find this conversation a bit icky because Mm. I think what New Zealanders want to hear, me and other MPs focused on, is our policy solutions for delivering for them and our answers to the challenges they're facing. And when I start talking about me and my job, I just think that's the wrong focus. So, as I said before, we've still got a long way to go until the election. My focus is on earning support for the National Party so that we can change the government and lead the next government. Uh, my focus isn't on what job I might or might not have after the election.
8: All right.
0: Let's have a look. Uh, Labor Party had their conference over the weekend. The Deputy Prime Minister said that a national government would be dangerous. Will people have, you know, and this is for, for people who have the least in the country. Will they be worse off under national
1: I don't think so. Hmm. When I look at this past five years of Labor, I see a lot of failure for those who are worst off in our community, whether it's the 30% year on year increase in house prices, the quadrupling of the state house waiting list, the tens of thousands more children being raised in benefit dependent households, the ram raids that are happening every day. All of those issues impact. New Zealanders across the board, and I think it's pretty rich for Labour to say that things are being put at risk by National, when actually a lot of New Zealanders are doing it very tough under Labour right now.
0: So I, I guess when I, when I saw it, I thought he was referring perhaps to some of the support services they have, or perhaps <coughs> benefits or uh, any any kind of helping that they can. Well, those th- those sorts of things for families, particularly like we mentioned here, our mm-hmm. most vulnerable. Will they stay under National, or do you have development plans for them?
1: Yes, they will stay under national, and I think it's really disappointing that instead of debating the real issues, and there are some real areas of debate between national and labour, instead we've kind of got the scaremongering. Our policies are really clear. We do think New Zealanders should get to keep more of their own money, and we have promoted tax reduction as a way of achieving that. We think the government should be getting more value out of its spending and delivering more frontline services. But we always stand for a good safety net for those vulnerable New Zealanders, for those who are out of luck or need extra support. We were the first government in many years to lift benefits when we were last in office, and we stand by the fact that a good safety net is needed.
0: Now, finally, Westpac Bank, I I, I don't know if you've seen this, profits rose by 12% to $1.16 billion there. A windfall tax is something that people look at and go, how come the rest of us are doing it tough and these banks are at 1.16 billion your thoughts on their profits and should they be paying for that
1: i feel very uncomfortable about the bank profits at a time when new zealanders are really struggling with a growing cost of living Mm -hmm. and i heard the prime minister talk about that at her post cabinet press conference well my message is it's not enough to talk about it what is the government going to do about it? And I think we need to get to the bottom of what is driving those massive profits for the banks. And I'm reiterating my call uh, for an independent inquiry into the decisions made by the Reserve Bank, the extraordinary money printing I want to know how much that's added to banks' bottom lines uh, at the expense of New Zealanders who are now suffering from record inflation as a result.
0: So will you be able to float the idea of a windfall tax perhaps in the House?
1: The first question we need to answer is what is driving those profits and how much bigger are they than they should be? To get an answer to that question, we need an independent inquiry I'm going to reiterate that call. I will prosecute that case in Parliament this week. Uh, We have to have an answer to that question before we then decide what is the policy response that's needed. But I'm going to be calling on the Prime Minister and the Finance Minister to put some action where their mouths are and to actually inquire into what's driving those profits, how much the money printing has uh, contributed to them and why it is that the banks are making record profits while New Zealanders are suffering under record Inflation.
0: Finally, did you manage to get tickets to the World Cup final this weekend or did you miss out like I did?
1: I did get tickets, oh, did. and I feel like that's um, a very fortunate <laughs> position for me to be in, and I'm so excited to be going. I just think the women did are so proud at the weekend. What a match, you know. I think a lot of us got our off. Highs and lows, off.
0: eh? Highs and lows. I mean, yeah. it, it does, I mean, that's one of the great things of sports fandom, though. You are allowed to go, miss it, miss it, for a bit, and then you can feel sorry. <laughs> then you can feel sorry afterwards for Caroline and
4: <laughs> yeah,
1: that, that's right. We were all being very patriotic as we as we wished we wished that ball not to go over. But look, I can't wait to be at that final to be there supporting them. And I'm sure with a really, uh, really full impact, it's going to be an exciting event. And I know that every single New Zealander will be backing them for the win.
0: That's Nicola Willis. There, uh, we wrap up the show with some Bonnie Wright. It's her birthday today. Uh, Julie of Kiteputa says, Morena Nathan reports of bank profits are fascinating." but I want to know how much tax they pay. Bastards, I live in a shed, so I don't have a mortgage. Andrew, I love this one, Andrew says, Hi Nathan, I attended Dame Allison Holst College. On the school jacket, there was a picture of mints on toast. It's- <laughs> It'd be a sausage roll, wouldn't it, Andrew? That's brilliant. Uh, one word text today, chives. I think that was uh, looking at guacamole recipes. And someone's gone, the COP27, what was up with that second intro? It was very positive. I couldn't wait to hear how we're keeping 1.5, but unfortunately the BBC didn't deliver. Have you been asked to spin COP news? No, no, no. That was, uh, I was reading a a statement from the UN's new climate change Change chief, Simon Steele, who was telling everyone, no, I'm doing a great job. Interesting. Hey, Morning Report is next with Marnie and Corinne from all of us here at First Up. Have yourselves a wonderful day. Marvash says garlic and guacamole. No! Mavash. no. Here we go. Thank you very much. We'll be back in your Ezeapopo.